Hello and welcome back to Chris and Reggie's Cosmic Treadmill where we go back, back to, to the, the past, past and read a comic book from the yesteryear of publishing. You can hear us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com or subscribe to us on our feed through Podbean, iTunes, Stitcher, and Bionuclear Psionic Biokinetic Field. You sound like a very intelligent young girl. <laughs> I, I, I brushed up this week. That's why. <laughs> I took a little uh, advanced uh, physics for you. So Very yeah. good. That's a, As always, that's a tip-off to our book this week. So why don't you tell us all about it? Well, this is part of Marvel March, and we are taking requests. And this request comes from uh, a good friend of ours, Andrew in Belfast. He is at PopVox Culture on Twitter. He's also a very prolific uh, Star Wars blogger for yep. uh, various various blogs and sites around the internet. Mm-hmm. And the book he requested was Generation X number one from 1994. The uh, title, Third Genesis. The release date, September 13th, 1994. Cover date, November 1994. Written by Scott Lobdell. Art by Chris Bacciolo. Is it Bacciolo or Bacalo? <laughs> Are you asking me? I would have said Bacalo, yes. but I maybe it's Bacalo. That sounds okay. I always said Bacalo, but I was always very uh, reading it as I see it. So, yeah. but who knows? Uh, it's inked by Mark Buckingham or Buckingham. Uh, cover price three dollars ninety five cents, and that's a full wraparound chromium awesome cover that uh, you get for four cents cheaper than you get a regular book for these days. Yeah, I was I was gonna say it's uh, right up there with today's prices. And, you yep. know, but uh, <laughs> it's all well worth it though with this beautiful uh, cover that we'll be describing a little bit later on. But first, of mm-hmm. course, we talk about our creator bios and uh, we start with the writer scott labdell born either august 24th 1960 or someday during 1963 probably on dry land mm-hmm. maybe in marlboro new york it's kind of hard to pin down we don't know uh you know he, he also may have uh been a one-armed man at one time we're not sure perhaps uh he did not grow up a comic book fan but only resorting to reading them while convalescing after lung surgery when he was 17 so that was either in 1977 or 1980 thereabouts he was more fascinated with the idea that people got to make comics for a living than the stories themselves he decided this might be the career path for him he studied psychology at college until he came to the realization that he did not want to spend the rest of his life listening to everyone's problems he completed two years that's all psychology is right chris there's no other Uh, yeah there's nothing else in the field it's just it's just sitting a guy's on a couch i think i've seen the new yorker cartoons that's all it is right that's that's it (laughs) Goodness gracious. Should have gone for the third year, Scott. There was more to it. Anyway. A little bit. Uh, he decided to pursue writing, utilizing conflict and resolution techniques from his brief psychology background. <laughs> <laughs> Worked on the college newspaper as a writer and cartoonist and would perform interviews. The first one was New York newscaster Chuck Scarborough, which who which followed Scott, which showed Scott that he could use the paper to chat with people who he found interesting and who might help him get his foot in the door in the comics industry. Not necessarily Chuck Scarborough, so he looked up comics <laughs> editor Al Milgram, did the interview, and felt he had an in at Marvel. For the next year and a half, he would regularly travel to Marvel headquarters and drop off story, story synopses. That's a five-hour round trip from, I guess, Marlboro, New York, would you, would you say? I think so, yeah. Upstate somewhere, I, I think. Uh, he began networking with a few Marvel editors. He received multiple rejections. However, one from Tom DeFalco had a handwritten PS that said, this story isn't as bad as the last story. That's, that's what you want to hear. Take heart in that. There you go. You're on your <laughs> way, kid. 
<laughs> now, uh, we got to go to his first uh, actual Marvel uh, story here. But first, we're going to talk a little bit about the book that he was writing the story for. And that was Marvel Comics Presents. It was a bi-weekly anthology series that launched in September of 1988 and would run 175 issues until March of 1995. Each issue uh, featured four eight-page stories. So he pitched a story to Tom DeFalco using obscure characters. Because if he had chosen a big-name character, it would have to be okayed by upwards of four editors before it got the okay. Yeah, good Like, the final okay. Yeah. Yeah. So he pitched a story featuring, this is funny, the Global Village characters. <laughs> from. Uh, <laughs> this is from Marvel's 1982 Contest of Champions miniseries. And uh, that was a uh, three-issue miniseries that ran from June through August 1982 and is considered Marvel's first limited series. Yeah, I think it's the first ever... Series, isn't Period, it? In comics, right? yeah, I believe I so. I think so. Or the first intentional one. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Now, uh, from Marvel uh, Comics Presents, moves on to uh, Uncanny X-Men. Uh, we had a, well, not, not, not right away, but we'll get there. Uh, now, leading up to and following the Image Comics Exodus, which I think we've talked to, we've talked about like every week. Yeah, pretty much. Whenever we're in this, <laughs> in this area of this time, it's got to come up, yeah. Sure. Now, the uh, X-Men books, they were in kind of a crisis mode, creator-wise. Uh, following either the departure or the ouster of Chris Claremont, Marvel reached out to John Byrne to script Jim Lee and Will Spertacio's plots and art on Uncanny X-Men. This didn't last long. <laughs> now, citing that he was receiving art too late to adequately script, Byrne left after only five issues. Now, we discussed this story uh, in greater depth during our Byrne bio way back long time ago. Gosh, in the summer of uh, last, yeah, last year. Yeah, but uh, this is what he had to say, so you don't have to go uh, digging through the archives just yet. He says, apart from the logistical nightmare working with Jim and Wills turned out to be, the characters themselves had moved so far away from anyone I knew or wanted to know, I found absolutely no connection to them. Uh, then enter Scob Lobdell, who can find a connection with anything. Mm -hmm. uh, he was already working on Alpha Flight, more on that in a moment, and he was in the office one Friday evening in December when he was approached by X-Men editor Bob Harris about scripting 22 additional pages that weekend. He said, sure, I got nothing to do. Later, yeah. later that evening was the Marvel Christmas party where Lobdell found out that everyone else had been offered the gig and turned it down. <laughs> he became the fill-in scripter for Uncanny X-Men for a few months until it became his regular gig. And so begins his time with one of Marvel's flagship books. Kind of stumbled into it by virtue of, you know, doing a uh, thankless task. Um, Alpha Flight. So he wrote Alpha Flight, number 106, March 1992, where a North Star came out as a homosexual. This was after he adopted a baby who had AIDS. The baby is referred to as Joan Bobier, North Star's own surname. Is it Bobier? Do you like that better, or is it a? I I don't know which one I say. I think I say them both. I feel like Bobier adds it to sort of a royalty. I th I but, think we uh, used to call it Booby when we were kids. Well, but, uh, yeah, that, that's what I would have. That done probably the same wasn't thing. it. Uh, anyway, the baby dies. That same issue. So problem solved. All royalties from the book went to the Elizabeth Glazer Pediatric AIDS Foundation. Uh, wrote what is often looked at as the looked at as the worst X Men family comic book, at least in the 1990s. X Men Unlimited number four, March 1994. The issue would reveal that Mystique is Nightcrawler's mother amid a mess of continuity errors and tweaks. 
Labdell himself even mocked the issue on Usenet under the screen name of Kid York. And were you in the mix at that time, Chris? I was. You were. I you was. were right there, seeing it happen. Mm-hmm. How did it come out? I mean, am I gonna? Am I gonna? Yeah. How did it come out that it was him? Did he just admit it? It, it was. It was pretty obvious because he knew a little bit too much, mm-hmm. and then he finally did just come around and be like, "That's yeah, me." Yeah, Kid York. That's great. I mean, that's like his boxing name now. Yes. Anyway, for better or for worse, this would pay off a long, lingering, dangling plot line uh, dialing, dating back from the early mid-Claremont run. Since we're not sure when we'll discuss it again, we'll just say that Claremont's original plan was for Mystique to be revealed as Nightcrawler's father, since she was a shapeshifter. Longtime associate uh, Destiny would be Night- Nightcrawler's mother. That was the mm-hmm. idea, so... Yeah, because it was always hinted that they were a little bit more than just friends, but yeah. they, back in the day, they weren't allowed to uh, really go into that. <clears throat> um, now, we have him firmly ensconced in Uncanny X-Men scripting, and hey, it's the 1990s, and it's yeah. so it's time for a crossover. Yes, and this, successive crossovers. It's like Indeed. <laughs> uh, now, this one is called The Executioner's Song, and this was his first crossover, and it was also my first crossover. Whoa. Yes, and, uh, you know, this was uh, at the time where they was, it was almost mandated that every single year there would be one major crossover. Yep. Which these days, I couldn't imagine there only being one big crossover a year. Yeah, they would feel like they left money on the table, you know. But I mean, <laughs> pre- pretty much was the same for DC at the time, too. Uh, mm-hmm. al- almost well, they, every year. They had year. theirs running through the annuals, yeah. Yeah, they, that's exactly right, yep. Now, Executioner's Song ran through Lobdell's Uncanny X-Men, and also X-Men Volume 2, X-Factor, and X-Force during cover dates November 92 through February 93. It would feature X-Force baddie and cable lookalike Strife lashing out at his, quote, parents, Scott Summers and Jean Grey, and this would end with his, and as well as Cable's, apparent deaths. Marvel would change course in the months that followed, making it so Cable was actually Cyclops' son and not the evil mutant terrorist Strife. Couple months later, we have Fatal Attractions. Uh, the Fatal Attractions saw the return of Magneto as not really a deep character anymore, more just a raving lunatic. Uh, it ran through the X family of books, including Excalibur and Wolverine, during the middle of '93. Uh, this is the famous story where Wolverine had his adamantium unceremoniously yoinked from his bones. Yep. Uh, now we could probably do a whole episode or series of episodes discussing just X-Men crossovers, even X-Men crossovers from the 90s. But uh, we're just going to list these for now, as it establishes that by 1994, Scott Laudell was not only just a fixture, but a driving force of the mutant family of titles. Absolutely. And I think that if we were to detail any more of the crossovers, we'd have to go get a board, some thumbtacks and yarn and start to make our conspiracy board. Yes. Tracing, you know, different, you know, different lines and you know, trying to figure out all this, uh, this mishigash, as they say, in the old country. <laughs> anyway, we'll go right to the artist, Chris Bachelo. Bacalo? We, we never decided. Chris, Chris Bachelo, I'm going to say. Mm-hmm. He was born August 23rd, 1965, in Portage La Prairie, Canada. Though Canadian, he was raised in Southern California. He would have become a carpenter if not for his allergy to dust, studied at Cal State Long Beach, and majored in graphic art, drew for some underground comics during college. Uh, then he went to D.C., Vertigo. He did uh, Sandman, Death. Bachelors was first, his, that was his first published work, was on Sandman number 12. January 1990, though he'd already received his assignment from Peter Milligan's written Shade the Changing Man. More on that in one second. 
He was selected by Neil Gaiman to draw both the Death miniseries. That was Death, The High Cost of Living in 93 and Death, The Time of Your Life in 96. Yes. Uh, Shade the Changing Man, a part of uh, DC's what the, what's known as the British Invasion. Uh, Shade the Changing Man was a Peter Milligan pen title that hung out sort of on the fringes of the DC universe before being transplanted into the Vertigo imprint upon its launch in uh, January 93, just like, you know, like Doom Patrol yep. and uh, Sandman thing. itself. Yeah, yeah Swamp Thing. Um, now, but. Bacalo. <laughs> we're very sorry, sir. We don't. We yes, just, we apologize. We don't know. We, how to we're say. big fans of your work. We just yeah. don't know how to say your name. Uh, he, he is actually in my top three artists. I, just I can't say his he's name. Gr- he's great. I, lo- I love the art in this, but uh, yeah, I, was, I don't know how to say it. But uh, Chris B is listed as co-creator for this version of Shade. Though this series kind of hits just a few months after the Ditko version left the Suicide Squad, so maybe it's still the same guy, hmm. or not. It's been a long time since either of us have read it. Yeah, yeah, it has <laughs> been a long time. Yes, and this title would go on for 70 issues, though uh, Chris B. would only draw 38. Um, he would move over to Marvel, and he would pencil. He penciled a few things here and there, including uh, X-Men Unlimited, number one, Ghost Rider 2099, number one through three, and a backup in Incredible Hulk, number 400. Well, all right. Now, mm-hmm. Chris, the title of this uh, issue we're going to read is Third Genesis. Third Genesis. Isn't that sort of, what, what, you know, isn't the Genesis the beginning uh, of something? You so, think. So, uh, though it wasn't titled as such, this is why this is called the Third Genesis. <laughs> though it wasn't titled as such, we can assume that X-Men number one from 1963, that's the Stanley Jack Kirby original, that would be titled, that would be the first Genesis. Probably. Uh, then Giant Size X-Men number one, 1975, that was Len Wein and Cockrum, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that was that would that was titled Second Genesis, and that's when we got mm-hmm. the international team that is more familiar, I think, to a lot of people. Although sure. I don't know if it still is today. I don't know what's going <laughs> Who on. Who knows? And then uh, X Factor number one, 1986, was titled Third Genesis. So uh, we already have a third. Genesis. We have a third Genesis, but uh, this is this this should have been titled Second Third Genesis, right? Or Maybe Third Genesis: The Return. You know? Squared. You yeah. Know. Uh, poor New Mutants never did get a Genesis. Right, too busy playing their Super Nintendo. Oh, uh, but um, bum, very good. Ding. Um, and then we, you know, there are a lot of moving parts and characters in this story, so we're gonna do our best to try to detail some of the. Uh, People and things that will be discussed in the first issue of this uh, Generation X. One of the people is Banshee. First appearance, X-Men number 28, January 1967. Real name is Sean Cassidy, created by Roy Thomas and Warner Roth. He's a former Interpol agent and X-Men villain who turned over a new leaf in time to join the team again during Giant Size X-Men, when he, along with the rest of the new X-Men and Cyclops, rescued the original team from Krakoa. The Living Mutant Island. Mm-hmm. Kind of like, is that like Shasta, the Living Mountain? All right, I'm, now I'm going off the rails. Uh, <laughs> Not too different. It's, it's probably, I'd say, you know, the, the former informed the latter. Uh, mm-hmm. Banshee was a fair amount older than his contemporaries and often, was often a reserve member. Mm-hmm. There's also White Queen. First appearance was X-Men number 129, January 1980. Real name is Emma Frost, created by Chris Claremont and John Byrne. She's also a former X-Men villain, remember the Hellfire Club. During the days of the New Mutants, she would run the Massachusetts Academy, which would eventually be the home of Generation X. However, initially it was home to the Hellions, Frost's own team of teen mutants. 
so the, some of their graffiti is still around and they still yes. they carve their names in some of the desks and that's you know uh spider-man and his amazing friends alumnus uh firestar's entry into marvel continuity had to do with a story where xavier and frost were competing for her Mm-hmm. Nice. It was a four-issue miniseries. Uh, the New Mutants here, their first appearance, Mar- Marvel Graphic Novel Number 4, December 1982, uh, created by Chris Claremont and Bob McCloud. It was the first team of young mutants. Uh, apparently, I guess, like, this was an editorial mandate. I don't think Claremont wanted to write this. Uh, which, but that's what we hear a lot about Claremont in the early 80s and, yeah. and whatnot. <laughs> but uh, this was, a, you know, the first team of, of young mutants. Uh, their first volume would run for 100 issues. Uh, with a few specials, and it parlayed into X-Force after uh, Rob Liefeld came on. Now, I, I just want to cut in for a second and and point out, though, the original X-Men team from 63, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, they were, they're young mutants, too, though. Those those guys are all college age or younger. Isn't, isn't uh, I guess, I guess they're all in college, right? Jean Grey's in college. But they're all they're all like in their twenties or their late teens. They're so. in their they're in their twenties, yeah. Some some to think about, you know what I mean? These are they're they're young folk too. Anyway, yes. Yeah, because uh, what's it? Because uh, they the original X Men, I think they graduated in X Men like number eight. Yeah. Which is very early. I know it's it's <laughs> it was really a weird a weird thing. You thought we were yes. going to spit out years of stories in the school, and it was like, no, you graduated, you're done. No, you're done. Here's your hat. <laughs> you know, all you got to do is log like 400 hours in the danger room, and you're good. That's it. Uh, another character we're going to meet. Uh, she's going to loom quite large throughout this episode. It's uh, Jubilee. Uh, her first appearance is Uncanny X Men number 244 from May 1989. Real name. Jubilation Lee. Hey, all right. Yeah, sure. Uh, created by Chris Claremont and Mark Silvestri. Uh, now, the X-Men, they, they've long had point-of-view characters to give readers a differing perspective. It's not just, you know, the the action of uh, seasoned heroes. We, uh, you know, get a young one so we can kind of see how it is from the outside. Yeah. Before this, it was Kitty Pride. Also, you know, Wolverine just needs a girl sidekick, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> earlier, that was Kitty Pryde. All the time. Uh, yes. Now, Jubilee meets the X-Men while they're in the Australian Outback. This is during the time where the world thinks that they are dead. Uh, this is following the mutant massacre. Now, while creeping around a base, she comes across Wolverine, who is being tortured by the Reavers, which is kind of like a uh, group of uh, cybernetic Mad Max types that hung out in the Outback. Uh, Jubilee's design is very Robin-esque, even down to the haircut and color scheme. Uh, she would uh, become an X-Men mainstay and even play a major role in the animated series, where she was, again, the point-of-view character. Um, now, in the Uncanny X-Men issue preceding Generation X, very well-done issue, she was uh, having a quite a hard time dealing with her apparent demotion, or what she viewed as a demotion. I think she the showed up in the X. movies too. Uh, she did. Yeah, Recently. she did. Right. Yeah. So and, a picture. Yeah. And actually, I, I, when I think of her, I th- even though I probably only watched a handful of the cartoon, I think of her mm. from the cartoon. That's yep. like that's like my mental jubilation. Mm-hmm. I didn't know she was Jubilation Lee though. You sure she wasn't named by Walt Disney? <laughs> Sheesh! What the heck? <laughs> Uh, we're all going to be talking about the Phalanx Covenant. Phalanx. Okay, that works. Phalanx Covenant. The crossover that leads into the formation of Generation X. This ran through the entire family of X-Men books throughout the month of September and October 1994. Uncanny X-Men and X-Men Volume 2 featured the core storyline called Generation Next. The X is, mm-hmm. is capital. 
<laughs> uh, um, written by Scott Labdell and Fabian Nicizia. Nicizia. That one you know, but we don't know about That one I know. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Nicizia with art by Joe Maduriria. Majuara. Thank you very much, Joe Majuara. Uh, you know, I, I'm going to get slapped for this. And I'm going to deserve it one day. And Andy Kubert. Cooper. Oh, come on now. <laughs> Uh, X-Men baddies Stephen Lang and Cameron Hodge allowed themselves to become assimilated by techno-alien types, the Phalanx. They are not unlike Warlock from the New Mutants, and they can take the form of other life forms. This story starts off like a horror movie with Banshee arriving at the X-Mansion, which houses an X-Men team which is acting rather strange. He runs a computer scan that shows... The only mutants present are Jubilee, a comatose White Queen, a captive Sabretooth, and himself. White Queen was driven into a coma following her team of Hellions being murdered by Trevor Fitzroy back in Uncanny X-Men number 281. Sabretooth had been taken by Xavier with hopes that he might curb his homicidal homicidal tendencies. That always works out right, right? Probably not. Now, it would turn out that these other X-Men present are, in fact, phalanx, phalanx dupes who are trying to utilize Cerebro to track down new mutants. Uh, Banshee, uh, he decides to destroy Xavier's computer system and attempt to keep that information out of the phalanges of the phalanx. Very good. Uh, yes. <laughs> now, the four makeshift X-Men, they're able to escape the mansion, and uh, they save a single new or young mutant afterwards. His name is Sink. Everett Thomas, first appearance is right here, X-Men number 36, right in the middle of this storyline. The Phalanx are, however, able to capture four newbies. Yeah, and we will be dealing with them also. They are Husk, Mm -hmm. a.k.a. Paige Guthrie, sister of Cannonball, (laughs) and about a zillion other Guthries. Yeah, she was, they, they, uh, what is it, they done multiplied or whatever. Yeah, we we done, we done, whittled them out. Anyway, uh, first appearance, oddly enough, was ROM, annual number three, way back in 1984, which is very strange. That's cool. Isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, we also have M, this is Monet, Monet St. Croix. Her first appearance is right during this storyline, Uncanny X-Men number 316. Uh, we'll get to her backstory a bit later, for uh, better or worse. All right. Uh, there's Skin, a.k.a. Angelo Espinosa, first appearance, Uncanny X-Men, number 317. And then we got Blink, Clarice Ferguson, first appearance, also, Uncanny X-Men 317. Now, poor Blink would not survive this initial phalanx storyline. She dies sacrificing, sacrificing herself a month after she's introduced. She found herself with a cult-like following in the years that followed because she played a pretty big role during the uh, Age of Apocalypse mega storyline event deal. Um, so much so that uh, she actually got an action figure. Nice. And, uh, <laughs> yes. And in the early days of the Jamis Casada Marvel, Blink was given her own miniseries, which spun into the long-running, sort of like uh, that TV show Sliders. Uh, sure. It's a, it's a, a comic called Exiles. Uh, now, this bit here ends with the Generation X kids, minus Plink, because she is dead, <laughs> safely escaping the phalanx. For now, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, they escape the phalanx. Uh, X-Force, X-Factor, and Excalibur feature the next phase, Life Signs. Written by Scott Lubdell, Fabian Nicieza, and Todd DeZego, with art by Jan Dursema, Tony Daniel, Ken Lashley, and Steve Epting. Professor X assembles their second stringers and alerts them to the threat of the, the phalanx. They believe that this all started when Warlock's cremated remains were stolen by hate group the Friends of Humanity. 
It's a good it, name for a hate group. It is, yeah. That's what I would do if I had a hate group. <laughs> uh, Warlock died during the X-Team's last big run-in with Cameron Hodge, the ex- Extinction Agenda. And yes, it's spelt the way you think. <laughs> Warlock's ashes were laid at his grave as his self-friend, Doug Ramsey. Doug Ramsey was the new mutant named Cypher, who had the extremely helpful battleful pa- battle power of... Understanding any language, so mm-hmm. pretty much like anybody who graduates Oxford can probably also uh, have that power. Be cipher. Yeah. Needless to say, he died. He did die. Yeah. Uh, now we say all of that, so we may say this: the uh, team of second stringers they learn of the existence of <laughs> Doug Lock, <laughs> <laughs> believed to be the reanimated Doug Ramsey, who was cipher, with the genetic whozy whatsits of Warlock. It's ultimately revealed that Doug Lock is simply Warlock with Doug's memories. He's even given his own, thankfully short-lived, ongoing series as part of Marvel's ill-fated M-Tech line of comics. He's Listen, he's just simply Warlock with Doug's memories. Let's not That's make it. it complicated, okay? <laughs> I mean, sheesh. God. No. People people go, go any, take any old story these days. This is a fact. And uh, <laughs> M-Tech, since I doubt and hope we never talk about that again... Also included X-51, which was a Machine Man comic titled in such a way to confuse X-Men completions. <laughs> and also uh, try, and also another try with the Deathlock character featuring a side character from Joe Casey's run on cable. Uh, now, anywho, the uh, second string is Destroy Phalanx Incubators, and it appears as though Doug Locke sacrifices himself. But he doesn't. He gets better and joins Excalibur instead. Uh, of course, yeah. Sure. <laughs> now, Wolverine and Cable's books would feature the wrap-up. It's called Final Sanction, written by Larry Hama with art by Adam Cubitt and uh, Steve Scross, or Scrosi. Uh, Cyclops and Jean Grey return from their honeymoon. And obligatory miniseries, The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, where they head to the future and raise Cable from boyhood to adolescence. Yeah, really. I mean, was, was there a series where it was like X Men sleeping, never, and it was never. just like twenty-two pages of just like <laughs> them panels. snoring, just black, you know, it was like a snoring thing, people mumbling. <laughs> now, anyway, they, they 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 return home and they get right into the phalanx action. They team with Cable and Wolverine to attack on two fronts. Uh, Gene and Cable do their astral plane type thing, and Cyclops and Wolverine infiltrate. Uh, Wolverine finds Bishop in one of the containment chambers and uses his mutant energy source, power, nebulous, whatever, to bring down the house. Lang and, Lang and Hodge appear to perish, but, you know. Yeah, that doesn't usually work out that way. Mm. Of potential interest, the Phalanx Covenant was sort of kind of adapted into a two-part episode in the mid-1990s X-Men animated series, though it features the Beast rather than Banshee in the point of view role. Also, none of that pesky Generation X stuff that just would have complicated things unnecessarily. Yeah, because who needs that? No, it's, uh, that's uh, kid <laughs> stuff. Uh, Generation X collectors preview an ash can. The launch of Generation X was actually treated like a big deal. This was from a time where the big two would only have a handful of launches each year, and the comic shipments wouldn't be comprised with number ones on a weekly basis. So this was a true collector's item, you know? This was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, not like... A legitimate uh, launch. I'm not sure if it's actually was a true collector's item because I have a feeling they printed over, uh, probably a bazillion copies, but you know, yeah, at it, least it was treated with some kind of ceremony at least. Mm-hmm. So let's jump right into the actual book, folks. Generation X number one, titled Third Genesis. Uh, like we were talking before, this is a wraparound cover that is. Oh, you know, it's actually somewhat unique. You know, it's got mm-hmm. the it's got the big bad on the back cover. Uh, and the whole team just sort of uh, zooming in on him. 
This is not a totally typical 90s cover, but it's not an atypical 90s team cover. <laughs> yeah. Is that fair to say? It's better, than, it's better than average. The poses aren't weird. Uh, everything looks correct. It looks there's action. So, yeah, I'm. Uh, it's a good cover. It's worth checking out. I'm looking at the digital, so I don't get the chromium effect, but uh, it's still pretty cool to look at. So, uh, it's a brisk morning in the, at the Massachusetts Academy, and young mutant Husk is out for an early run. She manages to run 5 miles in 35 minutes, which she's pretty proud of. Teammate Jubilee, however, thinks it's just plain wrong to be up and at him this early in the day, even referring to Paige as one sick puppy. You just wait, Jubes. They chat for a bit, mostly Jubilee, big-leaguing Paige, since, you know, she was once one of the X-Men, big deal. She might mention that from time to time. She also uh, pals with Wolverine, which she might also might mention every now and again, but you know, just or all the time. Yeah. So people, so people are keeping it in mind that she's somebody. Uh, Husk decides that in lieu of a shower, she'll just shed the top layer of her skin. Pretty gross, right? Yeah, pretty gross, and it looks pretty gross too. Yeah, uh, she's like peeling her hairline. It's ugh. Jubilee. Scalp. Ugh. Jubilee is not thrilled with this. No, she goes, yeah, I hate, hate, hate when you do that, you know? And Husk replies, I know. What a jerk. Yeah. What's worse, as if there could be something worse than someone peeling their skin off, <laughs> uh, Paige just leaves her shedded, sweaty skin on the ground. Like, you know, I get yelled at if I have a sock lying around, but mm -hmm. she's shedding her skin and just kind of crawling out of it. So that's... Uh, Pretty bad. Probably bad hygienically, too, I would think. But anyway. Maybe. Uh, the two Maybe feeds the birds. <laughs> now you've made me even sicker. Thank you. <laughs> the two are interrupted by the arrival of M. She flies in, which is supposed to be a big no-no. They don't want people to, you know, they don't want to draw any attention to the Institute and show people flying around and using their powers. But M feels she has nothing to hide. Jubilee goes, yeah, and if my power was to be Miss Perfect Press 94, I wouldn't try to hide it either. M replies, but instead you give off sparks from your hands. You must be quite amusing at parties. <laughs> Banshee interrupts the banter, informing the young ladies that it's time for their 7 a.m. training. But first, he's going to have to unload M's luggage, which has arrived in the form of several big rig trucks. Oh, boy. <laughs> we shift scenes to an airplane where we meet a young man with half his face wrapped in bandages. Perhaps the smartest little girl on the planet, here's a call back to earlier, yeah. is a bit enamored by him. She says, that guy has some kind of bionuclear psionic biokinetic field inside him. Huh? <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, our new, plan, our new pal Jonathan Starsmore decides to give the gal a bit of a show. Peels back his wrap ever so slightly to display the freaky light show beneath. That's kind of creepy. I mean, that's he's basically exposing himself to a child, if you want to get down to it. I mean, really, I mean, let's just call for what it is. Uh, this is true. Goodness. I, I don't know. Yeah, that sentence could have ended a lot more like, poorly than it did. Yeah. <laughs> Now, we uh, return to the school grounds where Sink is in hot pursuit, pursuit of someone. Okay, he's chasing Skim. Yeah. Uh, this is probably the first good look we get at the red and gold generation X uniform in action. And it looks pretty neat. Yep. Looks the uh, okay. X-Men are usually blue and gold, so this is a nice change-up. Uh, now, he recounts the gang's run-in with the Phalanx to catch, you know, newcomers up who might not have wanted to spend 30 bucks on a crossover. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, he comes across Skin's belt, which distracts him long enough to allow Skin to strike. 
and they wrestle about for a bit and wind up tangled in Angelo's super elongated, disgusting fingers. Yeah, and Angelo is sort of looks like a creepy imp. I don't know what they're called. You know what I mean? It's like a candle. Kind of, yeah. kind of looks like W.C. Fields, right? Getting stuffed, oh, stuffed into too much skin or something. <laughs> Anyway, inside the school, Banshee introduces Jubilee, Husk, and M to their new training facility, which is a biosphere. Jubilee is very, uh, she's, she's a little trepidatious. She goes, are you serious, Cassidy? A danger grotto? You want us to train in a terrarium? <laughs> Skin and Sink crash through the window. It seems their training already started. Banshee is kind of ticked off. He says, which one of you came up with the full idea of cross-training against each other? That would be me, Sean. Emma, I should have known. Are you daft, woman? The co-head, and I'm very sorry for any of our Irish listeners, by the way. And female uh, listeners. And female and... Uh, and valley girls. All of our listeners, yeah. Everybody. Uh, the co-headmasters bicker back and forth for a while. While they do, Jubilee catches a glimpse of Gateway out of the corner of her eye. Gateway is an aboriginal teleporter precog who first appeared in Uncanny X-Men number 229, May 1998. 1988, very sorry, uh, created by Chris Claremont and Mark Silvestri. He's been retconned as an ancestor to X-Men Bishop, although that came later than this, uh, yeah. and he vanishes just as quickly as he appears in this scene. Mm-hmm. Now we shift scenes to uh, Boston's Logan International Airport. I wonder if that was on purpose. Uh, <laughs> where we meet a, a strange, shadowy individual who's uh, got wild hair and is wearing sort of a gas mask. He's being driven by his diminutive servant known as D. He's there to meet the incoming Jonathan Starsmore. Hmm. Now back at the academy, Jubilee and Everett are getting ready to head to the airport with Banshee to pick up their newest member, Jonathan Starsmore. Hey, what a hey. coincidence. <laughs> M is busy climbing trees, which might just tell us she's not quite as mature as she projects. Unfortunately, there is more on that later. Mm, very uh, interesting so. turn of events, but we'll get to that later on. Yes. Now, Banshee pulls up in his sweet convertible, and Jubilee hops in the back and sits all cool girl style on the, back of, on the top of the back seat. <laughs> <laughs> At which Banshee slams on the gas and knocking her down. Oh, that goes, prankster. <laughs> Sorry. Hey, what you doing? Sorry, lass. Now buckle up. Rassum, frassum, you did that on purpose. Never. Now buckle up. Did too. Buckle. I'm buckling, I'm buckling. And after a good chuckle, M starts wandering the grounds where she comes across. Gateway. Hey. Hey, after a moment, she concludes that this must mean that he has returned. Now we're already at the airport, and we see Emplate. Emplate. Emplate is the guy with the gas mask. I don't yeah. know if we said that yet. But he's but, lurked, but, yeah. but we're there now. Um, I'm not even sure they uh, revealed it in the comic yet, but we're going we're gonna to spoil that for you. This guy's name is Emplate. Uh, he's looking for uh, Jonathan Starsmore. This page, I, I don't know about you, but doesn't this feel like something like out of like early Vertigo? It's like this weird, like juxtaposition between you know normal folks going about daily life, absolutely, and this like, yeah, and this like super disturbing template in, in just like a mundane location. I mean, I was thinking, and and definitely, you know, he looks like one of the guys that was in the uh, you know Brotherhood of Dada, you know, with the hose yes. mask. But mm-hmm. it, it reminds mm-hmm. me of like it's something you would see at a Doom Patrol or Shade, the Changing Man. And San- good reason yeah, for or that, Sandman, or Sandman, or oh, any of that Vertigo stuff. But yeah. <laughs> Anything that uh, Chris Pachalo. <laughs> we 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 see we see from whence he came, so I guess there's a reason for that. Now, uh, we do learn here that M-Plate feeds off of mutants. Someone's got it, right? 
I know. Uh, elsewhere in the airport, we find Banshee and company. Sink suggests that perhaps it's normal for mutants to be feared and hated, seeing as though the three of them could level the entire airport. Hint. Stands to reason. Yeah. <laughs> Chamber deboards and uh, heads into the airport, where he is snatched by the face of M-Plate, who has a disgusting little mouth and the palm of his hand. Gross. The Generation Xers <laughs> leap into battle and are not terribly effective. They are brand new, though. This is this is first day at schools, people. Yes. So, uh, Mplate rede- redirects all of their attacks attacks back at them. Luckily, Sink is able to sink his bod to absorb it at all. That's sort of what he does: is sink to things. Yeah. Uh, Starsmore is able to fight back, which, according to Mplate, not is not supposed to happen while he's feeding. Here we get our first full frontal on Chamber. The lower half of his face down to his chest is a cavity of sparking energy, hence the bandages. Which is very much like a uh, Larry Trainer, anyway. Uh, yeah, know, a bit. something to think about. Emplate uh, mm-hmm. recovers and begins another approach, and the rest of the Generation X appears. Husk immediately runs in and is struck down for her troubles, like instantly. You know, she basically yes. walks into a, a sock. Uh, <laughs> fearing, fearing she might bleed out, Jubilee runs in to <sighs> peel off a layer of her teammate's skin. Yeah, she goes, if I'm right, we, we can save her right here. That is, if I can keep from spewing my lunch. Ugh. And moments later. There you go, Hayseed, a new bot underneath. And for the record, that was a one-time offer. And don't think I don't appreciate it. <laughs> uh, next, M decides to run in, but she's halted in her tracks. Emma, Emma Frost has invaded her mind and forced her to pause. What just happened? I did. (laughs) Emma, have you been smoking? Yes. (laughs) In the distraction, M-Plate disappears. Yes, now the entire event is written off as not being seen by the public because Emma made, uh, she made the, she she sigh-blinded, she made them sigh-blind to the herd. Yeah, sure. The herd of humans couldn't uh, couldn't see nothing. Yeah. And they couldn't tell any tales. Or uh, hear any loud noises or anything, you sure. know, or maybe or get shoved around, around, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now, we, uh, during this, you know, Amplate's gone, so we shift to where he arrives. Uh, maybe at his house, maybe at his bunker. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what the hell he is. Uh, we do find out that he's been keeping a person chained up there so he can feed off of them regularly. He uh, feeds off of uh, their bone, the bone marrow of, of mutants, apparently. Yeah. Gross. Uh, now, <laughs> yes, and now we also find out that that person has escaped. <clears throat> Back at the academy, Skin lights up a cigarette because he's from the wrong side of the tracks now. <laughs> <laughs> Jubilee goes, wow, is that a cigarette, dude? I'm so impressed. Skin's, Sarcastic. Of course. Uh, Skin says, I have a list of people I try to impress, Chica. And surprise, surprise, you're nowhere on it. Sick burn. Another one. Yeah. Now, <laughs> Chamber enters and he notes that there is someone there to see them. And outside on the lawn sits our old friend Gateway. It feels like we know him forever now. Oh, yeah. Uh, Banshee and company run out to see what's up. Sean's growing. It's great. Sean's just, he's so annoyed. (laughs) Hell, he's had a day and he's like, oh, God, what's next? Every step of the way. Uh, Now, further out on the lawn, they find a red skinned girl with very long and pointy fingers. Who could this be? Probably the red-skinned girl with long fingers who's in all the promotional up, but what do we know? Uh, (laughs) This is Penance, by the way, and she'll be kind of important. Yeah, but that would be in the next issue, which is, we'll talk about that and a little more about Generation (laughs) X after the break. 
Yes. Tonight, Fox presents a world premiere motion picture from the creators of the hit comic book series, The X-Men Comes Generation X. They've got the power. They've got the technology. They're the new generation of superheroes. And they're coming. To save the world. You can't win. I need some help out here, God! Get ready for Generation X on the Fox Tuesday Night Movie. All right, everybody, welcome back um, to Generation X number one. You know, uh, I just want to talk a minute about the actual comic that we read. And uh, yeah. just to say, uh, you, you are an old hand at it. This is probably not, the, yes. probably not the first, third, or fifth time you've read this particular issue, I bet, in your day. But uh, yes. I enjoyed it. I, I thought it was, I mean, you know, uh, the art was way better than I'd expect opening, cracking open a 90s comic, which is... With an X on the title, yeah. Even more so, you know, and with a rap, you know what I mean? Like, this is definitely definitely my prejudice, but there is some, you know, foundation for my feeling. Uh, but, uh, you know, as far as introducing all the characters, making sure you knew their names, hint, hint, uh, Rob Liefeld of Youngblood, uh, you know, no, you know and, and like, basically, you know, all the basics are pretty well laid out in this issue. Um, we know their powers, we know yeah. their names, we know their real names. And, and and you feel like they are meeting, you know what I mean? And I, and sure. I guess I guess that feeling being able to get in get in on the ground floor of something also feels good where it's like, all right, I can we can start here, you know, I'm gonna if I read mm-hmm. from this point on, I will be a generation X, you know, knowledgeable about that. So uh, yeah, I you could have skipped the you could have skipped the whole Phalanx Covenant because they do catch you up pretty good. Yeah, I mean they don't they don't mention that Blink is dead, but I mean really nobody cared at that point. Uh, but uh, it's a yeah it's a very it's a great first issue. It's uh, the type of thing they don't do anymore because everything's a continuation of something else. Yeah, I know it's, it's uh, they they tell you it's a good jumping on point, but it's not actually ever really a good jumping on point. It's always like oh no. I guess if you don't care about uh, you know previous continuity, it's sure. Okay. But you know when they eventually uh, when they eventually say, "Hey, Fantastic Four is coming back with a new number one," it's like that's still not Fantastic Four number one. That's Fantastic Four number six hundred and forty-five. Yeah, you know, it's yeah, volume volume eight or whatever. Yeah, yes, you can't just uh, you can't just uh, erase all that. And and you know we've talked about it before, but they never do. That's that's no, that's a whole other discussion. Anyway, that's a Marvel thing. Yeah, they the, keep, they they don't reboot. They don't ever reboot. You know what I mean? They they'll say they reboot. But they don't actually report. And DC no. too. I mean, look what happened. You know, they they uh-huh. they uh, walked it back. But anyway, uh, the first issue of Generation X was very good, concise, and clear. But my impression is it doesn't really stay all that. It doesn't stay <laughs> that way totally. So Not all the way. We're gonna wrap up the rest of uh, Generation X as it goes on. Um, it went under several different creative teams handled it uh, for the rest of the Lubdell Bachelor run. Uh, this was the initial run of Generation X. It would be interrupted just four issues in, Age of Apocalypse, don't you know? And the title was replaced for four months by Generation Next, which featured Shadowcat and Colossus training the next generation of mutants. And this is the series that gave us the Sugar Man. Everybody's favorite. We, that's what, and we needed that. Uh, the first two years of Generation X featured a lot of great getting-to-know-you type of stuff. A lot of quiet moments, which Lubdell excels at, in, in my opinion. Towards the end, Chamber and Skin go hitchhiking and wind up teaming with Howard the Duck. Yep. Sure, Mondo, who would join Generation X early on, is revealed to be a traitor in cahoots with Banshee's cousin, Black Tom Cassidy. 
Yes, Mondo was a uh, a big Samoan character with a like a Hawaiian shirt, and uh, he wound up being the traitor. Oh. Um, now we had uh, James Robinson came on briefly, uh, and also we had uh, Larry Hama who had a run which was a bit longer, but not very good. If you're if you know Hama from GI Joe and Wolverine, stick with GI Joe and Wolverine. Really, uh, right. This is not uh, this ain't hot. Um, here is where we learn everything that we didn't want to know about M. Okay, so here's the thing. We got this weird relationship between M, Monet St. Croix, Penance, and M-Plate. It's revealed that Monet is actually an amalgamation of her two younger sisters, one of whom is autistic. That's why she kind of spaces out from time to time. Uh, M-Plate, the fellow we just met with the nasty mouths in his hands, he is their brother who uh, who had himself a bit of a bone marrow addiction. <laughs> Penance... <laughs> <laughs> Penance, the girl, the red girl with the with the pointy fingers, is in actuality the real Monet, who was trapped in her spiky body due to one of Mplate's spells. Oh. Eventually, everyone wound up in their right bodies again, but the entire thing was a mess. Yeah, that, re- that really seems to be, uh, you know, taking the long way around, as they say. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And Larry Hammer also introduced us to the Puka. <laughs> The, ki- the kids meet an oversized, I don't know, like a, like an anthropomorphic rodent thing, like a weasel. It's like, uh, a, like a Furby, anything like that. He's, just, he's a weird, weird critter, and uh, he was called Elwood, and he was a puka, and I think he had like a flying car. It was terrible. Oh, wow. It's probably one of the worst things ever put on paper. <laughs> And uh, the whole arc, uh, from what I uh, from what I read when I was a, a Usenetter, uh, this was kind of the tipping point for a lot of Gen X readers. A lot of people were gonna stick around, and then they were like, "Nope, nope, I think I'll be taking my leave now." I don't know. I gotta. I need. Mm-hmm. To, I need to read the issues with Puka now. But that's the kind of <laughs> crazy person that I am. Now on the Jay Farber run, this introduced Adrienne Frost, the older sister of Emma Frost. She became co-headmistress of the Academy after learning that it was the home of Generation X. If you can believe it, Emma went to her for a loan. She convinced Emma to open up enrollment, but we'll get there. She placed the Generation X kids in peril, even trapping them in a simulation which created the deaths of Emma's Emma's first crew of students, the Hellions. That was from Uncanny X-Men number 281. The kids survived, no duh. Adrienne just escaped to become the new white queen of the Hellfire Club. Someone had to do it. Until sure. Emma shot her in the chest. Someone had to do that too, apparently. Uh, the kids found out and lost faith in one of their mentors. They were also human students. Or this is a human student's arc. No, they, uh, they, they started with the human students, uh, yeah. Just, uh, just, just adding them in to uh, mm-hmm. take, take some advanced uh, placement courses that I went up <laughs> Yes, yeah, so you got to work on your, uh, on your throwing sparks from your fingers there. Right, <laughs> yeah. A lot of those guys got C's in that, as I understand. Yes. Uh, the Massachusetts Academy opened its doors to human students. You like racism stories with mutant analogs? Well, good. We've, we've got some of those right here. You like racism stories with Romeo and Juliet-style romance? Yep, got those too. Yay! Yep. Warren Ellis and Counter X was what followed. Counter X was when they took three sort of aimless X titles and they gave them over to Plotmaster Warren Ellis. I'm not saying that sarcastically. That's actually what they called him. <laughs> they called him the Plotmaster. <laughs> uh, sounds like diabolical, doesn't it? Isn't it? Yeah, yeah. He was like tapping his fingers together. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, the books included uh, X Force, X Man, and Generation X. 
Uh, you remember Sink? We met him earlier. Mm. He dies during this. Mm. Uh, Counter X starts with a story sort of told in reverse that begins and ends with the death of Everett Sink Thomas. It's certainly a shift in tone from what came before, and I'm not really sure it was any better. Um, got like a real... I, I, it feels like a... And it might just be the art, because I think it was Steve Pugh who did it. Mm-hmm. But it feels kind of like a, like an Animal Man, uh, like a Delano-era Animal Man kind of tone. I mean, a lot of these storylines, they seem to be a little more in the in a skew to the adultish side, you know? Yeah, It definitely feels absolutely. like a Vertigo X-Men book of such a thing. Although this is at a time, again, when, you know, people getting eviscerated and, you know, riddled with bullets, that was an everyday thing, so... Yeah. Absolutely. Now, the source, the series would end after a slice-of-life four-parter that had a spending time with individual team members as they went around about their daily uh, business. Uh, the one I can remember is uh, I think Chamber was hanging out at, a, at an old record shop. Right. So uh, we got to watch him buy records and talk to girls. Uh, now we end with uh, Chamber getting promoted. Generation X-75 ends with Chamber being promoted to the X-Men. He would appear in Joe Casey's Uncanny X-Men. This is when Joe Casey and Grant Morrison came on. And he was immediately thrown into a story with a stand-in for Britney Spears. (laughs) (laughs) It wasn't the greatest, but I suppose suppose it beats Limbo. What are the the kids like? They like the Britney Spears, don't they? Well, put them in for Britney Spears. That'll be great. I seen her in a video. She she was she was so hot. Oh my goodness. Uh, Anyway, while we're on the subject of promotions, Emma Frost would move on to Grant Morrison's new X Men, where she would become a major player in the mutant world, eventually shacking up with Cyclops. And what we can probably look at as the exact opposite of a promotion, while at the same time being worse than a demotion, Banshee turns to the drink and founds the X Corps. They were first drawn to be wearing uniforms striking similar to, well, I mean, let's just say it, Nazis. They yep. look like Nazi, Nazi uniforms. SS, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this was a bad idea, although thankfully Banshee's suffering didn't last for too long. He died in the miniseries X-Men Deadly Genesis after getting sucked into the engine of an airplane like an errant seagull or something. Hmm. He is joined in the core by Gen X alumnus uh, Jubilee, Husk, and... M, the alumni, actually. Hmm. Husk joins the X-Men and gets into a strange and unpleasant-to-read romantic relationship with Warring Worthington III, a.k.a. Angel, the guy with the wings. Yes. They might have had sex in front of Paige's parents during Chuck Austin's run. Thank you, Chuck Austin. Where, where, you know, we're not going to say for sure. Uh, M would, like, would go on to join Jamie Madrox's X-Factor investigations before joining the X-Men. Really good run. That was uh, the Peter David one. This is like a, a uh, X-Men detectives or something? or Pretty much. Yeah, yeah. that sounds like a cool idea. Uh, Jubilee would later be depowered, turned into a vampire, and be the adoptive mother to orphan baby Shogo. So really, X-Factor Investigations is the better way to go. I think, yeah. Uh, then to have what happened to Jubilee. <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> uh, Skid would serve to be fodder to show how dangerous a hate group can be. He is literally crucified on the lawn of the X-Mansion. His legacy and remains lay in a grave that has the wrong name on its headstone. Thanks for always doing the proper research, Chuck Austin. Woohoo. Wow. Now, we have some intercompany and some non-canon stuff here. Uh, Generation X would team up with the similarly named Wildstorm, Wildstorm team, Gen 13, for a few out-of-continuity romps. Of note, Gen 13 was originally going to be called Gen X before uh, Marvel's lawyers put a put the yeah. kibosh on that. Sorry, <laughs> Nope. Yeah, you can't put X in there. Uh, 
Image uh, slash Wildstorm, they even ran an ad for Gen 13 with the title and logo Gen X huh. in uh, Stormwatch number two. So it's interesting to see. Wow. Um, now, uh, we also have the Generation X Underground special. Uh, in 1998, Marvel handed Generation X over to writer-artist Jim Mahfoud to have a little fun with. Uh, one of two planned planned issues made it to retail. It's not bad. It's different. Um, it's certainly a different style, and even the paper is a different quality. Huh. Um, it's probably worth checking out if you if you haven't read it. That's that's strange. So, I mean, is it just a sto- the uh, two off one off story with the team or something, or is it... it's like three or four uh, stories, huh. in, like uh, short stories in there? It, it's neat. It's it's definitely a product of the late nineties. Interesting. But, uh, I, I like Jim Mahfoud. I mean, he's I, yeah. he's unique, but I do like his stuff. Yeah, he's he's local. He's uh, he's uh, he's in Arizona. Oh, I didn't know that. Look at that. Look at that. Anyway, uh, there was some more to come from Generation X. There was also a TV movie. You just heard a <laughs> kind of a trailer advertisement for that in the break uh, a little while ago. That aired February 1996 on Fox and was supposed to be something of a pilot for a syndicated program to be a lead-in for the X-Files. And it was garbage stank. Uh, you can actually see it on YouTube yourself if you. Yeah. It is the whole two hours is out there in a couple of formats. Uh, one is in a three-part chunk. I think I saw, and then one of them I saw. You could watch the whole thing. The whole thing. Yeah. yeah. Uh, this added new characters to the fold called Buff and Refrax because the budget mm. was too tight to allow for characters such as Chamber and Husk to really show their stuff. And nothing wrong with that, really, although no. maybe the name's Buff and Refrax, but, you know, okay. Uh, you know, not all the not all the names are brilliant in, in the comics either. I take a pill every night for my acid refrax. Yeah, exactly. Oh, that <laughs> makes you pretty buff. Uh, it does. So they, uh, they used a white actress to play Jubilee, which is also not the worst thing. It wasn't as though she was always drawn to be Chinese-American in the comics. It's not 100% clear. Uh, yeah. The excuse they used was the character was that was originally going to be Dazzler, that's right, the disco mutant. Yeah. In a Generation X movie, why? Dazzler, who outside of the Age of Apocalypse event hadn't been in comics for like half a decade. Nice try, Fox, we're not buying that. <laughs> the movie really was just quite bad, and uh, Chris watched it when it aired, and yep. even then it looked cheap and half-hearted, even for 96 television. Mm-hmm. Of note, they would use Hatley Castle as the set for Xavier's school. This would also play the role in, play a role in the, th- the same role in three X-Men major motion pictures, so it, w- it w- there was that. At least it was sort of like scouting for Fox yeah, films, scouted right? scouted locations. Yeah. So it, was ex- <laughs> it was an expensive scouting for this uh, school. <laughs> yes. Maybe they wrote it off. I don't know. I bet they did, actually. <laughs> they write it off. How do they do that? I don't know. They just do. They just write it um, Create a wrap-up here. We got Scott Lobdell. Now, this one is a... Uh... This one's pretty personal to me here. He wrote Uncanny X-Men number 308, which is probably my favorite X-Men comic of all time. Wow. And it's probably why Scott Lobdell will always get a pass from me, no matter what. Even after that Teen Titans run, he still gets a pass from me. The Teen Titans run didn't get a pass, though. Let's not go crazy now. (laughs) (laughs) Now, this is uh, one of those quiet post-crossover issues that he always did so well. Uh, In it, the X-Men lick their wounds and celebrate Thanksgiving in spite of all their recent losses. Uh, Recently, uh, they had Ileana Rasputin, magic. She died of the legacy virus. Uh, Colossus, uh, who's Ileana Rasputin's brother, he defected to the Acolytes, Magneto's team. Uh, Wolverine had his skeleton sucked out. 
and Professor X was forced to lobotomize Magneto. Uh, also, it is where Cyclops and Jean Grey finally get engaged after 30-odd years of dating. Uh, famously, the, the lettering in the bubble for Jean's proposal, because she asked him, it's missing. It's literally a blank balloon. Weird. It's just, it's just he uh, he's standing there and he's talking, and then it's a blank balloon, and then he's like, "What?" <laughs> Which is what we were all saying. Weird. Uh, yes, and this blank balloon actually had to be explained and reprinted with the with the with the words in it in a, a letters column well, a little bit later on. What happened? Don't know. They just said they goofed. Oh, it was uh, just a mistake. Yeah. I, I thought. I thought maybe. No, no, it wasn't an artistic choice. They oh, just goofed. Okay. Or, or, they or, the... or maybe the first version was so rife with curses that like minutes before, <laughs> yes, they were like, "Oh, well, very... we can't let that run." You know, it's like nothing it was but f bombs. Yeah, very exactly. It was, it, was, it was totally, it was totally <laughs> sexual or something. Anyway, they were like, "How can we, how can we let that go through so many passes? It's ridiculous." Anyway, <laughs> uh, Lovedell also wrote after Xavier: The Age of Apocalypse. This is one of the biggest X. Men stories of all time and probably worth an episode somewhere down the line of the cosmic treadmill so if you want to hear about it pick a comic from this cross mm -hmm. this event and we will run down the whole thing uh bottom of the basics of it is that professor x's son and current tv star legion goes back in time to kill magneto and winds up at killed xavier instead Winds up having killed xavier instead scott labdell was steering the ship and this might just be his highest regarded work Yes, and also uh, not to not to keep going with the uh, huge mega events here. We have onslaught. Uh, it's probably also likely worth an entire episode, especially if we tie it in with what came after it. Um, in brief, a creature called onslaught, which is a mixed, which was the mixed consciousness of Professor X and Magneto. We did mention that he lobotomized him earlier, and that's kind of where it happened. Uh, that takes on he this creature takes on the entire Marvel universe. In order to defeat the baddie, the Avengers and Fantastic Four sacrifices themse sacrifice themselves. They, of course, wind up in a pocket universe created by Franklin Richards for that uh, year of Awful Heroes Reborn comics. Oh, um, Yes. Now, uh, Lobdell was responsible for uh, much of the planning and the execution of the storyline, and he wrote the uh, the two main one-shots. That was uh, Onslaught X-Men and Onslaught Marvel Universe. Wow. That's a, I you know I know about Heroes Reborn, but I never knew how that happened. Yep. Exactly. I knew they were in a pocket universe, but how? But here it is. Uh, speaking of that, we got Heroes Return. After the Heroes Reborn mess wrapped up, Lobdell was named writer of the returning Fantastic Four. He only lasted a handful of issues before being replaced by Chris Claremont. If folks thought Lobdell made FF X many, wait till they get a load of what Claremont brings to the table. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, all good things must end. So uh, Scott Lobdell was uh, he was either ousted or, re re or resigned from the X-Men books. Uh, people lean more on the side that he was ousted. Uh, not much, however, has been said publicly about this abrupt departure. Uh, what we have heard is that the original ending to yet another crossover, this one called Operation Zero Tolerance, this is when they fought, the X-Men fought a... Uh, a master mold bastion, a master mold Nimrod hybrid that was called Bastion. Okay. You might get there one day. We might not. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Maybe we shouldn't. But anyway, <laughs> he, he was the big bad there, and the ending to this crossover was changed, and that was somewhat controversial. Uh, the ending that we actually got was very, very safe and very, very sudden. Uh, the bad guy Bastion, he just gives up and turns himself over to the authorities. So I gotta wonder what Lobdell might have had in mind. I think he wanted I he wanted Bastion to be Hawk from Hawk and Dove, right? But then he couldn't get that. 
Could get that license. Was that the problem? Did Wave Rider touch him? Yeah, that's the problem. Tell, could do it. Tell, tell me where on this in, on this monarch figure. Where did, where did Wave Rider touch you? Uh, now, the later years of Lobdell's run appeared to be leading up to a huge reveal about Gambit. Um, he, this was all. This was peppered through the run from almost the get-go, and it would ultimately be revealed in Uncanny X-Men 350, which would. Uh, the first issue of Uncanny X-Men to ship in a very long time without Scott Lobdell's name anywhere on it. Wow. So uh, he kind of kind of drove the car all the way there, and someone pushed it over the finish line. Yeah, um, and he got, he got yanked un- yeah. Know, unceremoniously. Yeah, wow. Yeah, not even a mention of him in the book at all, because uh, Uncanny X-Men 349 was his last. Uh, now, Gambit, if, if in case you're wondering, Gambit was revealed to be instrumental in the Mutant Massacre. That was... Uh, when the Marauders came and slaughtered a whole bunch of Morlocks, uh, we learned that Gambit led the uh, Marauders to the Morlocks. All right, well, someone was there, I guess. Sure. Lobdahl then went over to Wildstorm when he got uh, ousted from Marvel or whatever. Uh, yeah. They parted ways. Uh, Lobdahl moved over to Image Comics' Wildstorm imprint, where he would write some Wildcats comics, including the Wildcats X Men series of crossovers. He then returned to X-Men. Uh, Lobdell, he briefly returned to the main two X-Men titles to tie off some loose ends before Grant Morrison and Joe Casey took over the franchise. Lobdell reestablished Cyclops' place on the team after he merged with Apocalypse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, he also ended the long-lingering subplot regarding the legacy virus and did so in a way that Colossus sacrificed himself. This was the start of Quesada and Gemesis' dead means dead days, and so this was intended to stick. Until some guy who writes about teenage vampire slayers decides he wants to slum it in comics for a bit. Uh, mm. I think you might be talking about Joss Whedon. Is that right? Or uh, I never heard of him. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> now, Lobdell did a lot of uh, independent work. Uh, he did a, uh, I think he did a series of, like Hardy Boys comics. Hmm. He did. Uh, he did a, a comic starring Jennifer Love Hewitt. Uh, just a bunch of like weird stuff, but uh, you know, not not a whole lot of stuff that I think. The listeners would really clom on to So we'll just jump ahead to uh, The New 52 Where he wrote a few titles at the launch One of them was Red Hood and the Outlaws Uh, Now this series may have been Initially been overshadowed by the Controversy regarding how Starfire is portrayed And that might not Have helped a lot of folks opinion on Scott Lobdell I can say though at the the very beginning when he wrote it It was good and he's you know he's he's, he's writing it now For Rebirth Mm -hmm. And it's, and still it's, good. it's one of their best yeah. titles. It's It's been Absolutely. great. I, I recommend it to everyone. Between that and New Superman are the two big shines of, of Rebirth yep. to me. Uh, he also, during New 52, Lobdell wrote the Superman family books following the revolving door of Superman Volume 3 writers. And the boy, there were a lot that came in. George Perez was in that. And yep. Andy and Diggle, Jurgens, I think, showed up. Keith yeah. Giffen, yeah. Uh, DC finally settled on Lubdell, who had a rather decent run. It was all right. Yeah, he wrote yeah. he wrote the new 52 volume of Superboy. Yeah, and then what was, didn't he do like Hell on Earth and uh, Doomed? Yeah, he, he, did those, right, uh, he did. Doomed was a whole thing. That was actually with Charles Soule and Greg Pak. That's right. Uh, but he clearly orchestrated it. Uh, you know, I would, not his strongest stuff, but no. You could do worse. That's all. That's sure, all I say that's... about it. And and the new Fifty Two, it's uh, that's saying something. It is yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, I, well, what happened to Superman after that was an abomination. So it's quite good. But anyway, <laughs> <laughs> now 
perhaps the strongest title of the new 52. <laughs> he wrote uh, the Teen Titans. Oh, boy. Now, uh, I can say with a certain amount of authority that due to the strength of Lobdell's Generation X work at, work at, at least one guy was very excited to see him announce uh-huh. adding the Teen Titans into the new 52. And that was a mistake. Yeah, it was. It, this is the worst. I've, I've said before on New 52 that Teen Titans were the most maligned uh, group, and this was just mm-hmm. another another bad move in that maligning of that team. But uh, yeah. the less said about that, the better. Absolutely. Uh, Unless it gets requested. <laughs> that's that's true. We I I, we will read out. about it maybe, but uh, <laughs> it will probably get shoved to the end of the list. I'll tell you right now. Um, now there's a little bit of controversy. A little controversy. Uh, it happened to me. I was sexually harassed on stage at a comic convention panel. This was uh, Mary Naomi, right? Is that the right way to say it? I think so. Uh, she wrote this uh, about being at the Long Beach Comic Con 2013 Prism Comics panel. She was uh, seated with. Uh, Lubdell, or no, I'm sorry, Lubdell was seated on a panel featuring LGBT creators, including Mary Naomi, a bisexual woman. Because throughout... Lubdell would fit there, right? Yeah, who the hell knows why, but, uh, <laughs> you know. He, he got could, lost. He could be bisexual, I don't know. But, uh, Maybe. Throughout the panel, Lubdell made some really odd comments to her. He asks, are you G-A-Y when she responds that she's bisexual, and he gives her a high five. And uh, he makes several mentions of her red lipstick, claiming that it's distracting him. When her microphone drooped in its holster, Lobdell suggests she's stimulated to get it back up. And there was also a story about a mango, but we're not going to get into that. This is still no. somewhat of a family program, folks. Yes. Uh, Lobdell would apologize both to Mary, both via communication through Heidi McDonald at The Beat, uh, as well as in a written public missive. He claimed it was a failed attempt at humor, and it was just ugly. A big mess, yeah. yeah. Big mess, probably best left forgotten, and we probably shouldn't have mentioned it, but hey, what are we going to do? There you go. It's all part <laughs> of it. But he, but he is still working today. You know, he's, he writes for, This is true. He writes Rebirth, uh, Red Hood and the Outlaws, and mm-hmm. I think that's it right now. I don't know. I think that's it right now, yeah. Uh, now we'll jump over to uh, Chris Bacalo. <laughs> Bacalo. Yeah. Bacalo. Um, he, uh, like so many others, was a part of Just Imagine dot dot dot. Uh, he wrote, uh, I mean, he was he provided art for Just Imagine Stan Lee with Chris Pachalo creating Catwoman. Now, we uh, we talked about the Just Imagine dot 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 series when we covered Jim Lee during the uh, Wildcats episode. But in brief, if you haven't heard that yet or don't feel like digging, uh, Stan Lee jumped over to DC to re- reimagine some of the heavy hitters of the DCU in Catwoman. We meet supermodel Joni Jordan, who probably has no relation to Hal, uh, who, along with her cat Ebony, are struck by a bolt of lightning, which links them. Sounds pretty riveting. Sure. Yeah. A lot of that stuff is, you know, not great. <laughs> yes, that's a good way of saying it. <laughs> uh, now, uh, Chris also did some creator-owned work. He uh, co-created Steampunk with uh, writer Joe Kelly for Image slash Wildstorm's cliffhanger imprint within an imprint within an imprint within an imprint. Uh, This was supposed to run for 25 issues. However, it ended with the 12th. I thought it was pretty good. However, uh, many felt the art was too rough and a bit too experimental to follow, which I kind of get. You can see that if you compare this with Generation X, Mm -hmm. you can see that he's kind of uh, restrained on Generation X. Oh, yeah. Um, 
you know, he is a bit stylized, clearly, but it's a style that I enjoy. Um, I usually put him in with artists like Ted McKeever and Bill Sienkiewicz, whose you know, work I also quite enjoy. And could also be kind of complex and, and expressive Absolutely. as well, yeah. Uh, I wouldn't mind taking a look at it myself. Is it very, like, Baroque and, like, Victorian style, the artwork on uh, uh, steampunk? Kinda, but but it's it's hard to explain. All right. I'll, Plus, it's been like ten years since I've read it. I'll take a look at it. Uh, Chris also worked on some more Marvel X Men stuff. Uh, following Generation X, Bachalo was promoted to Uncanny X Men, where he hung around for about a year. This was during the often acclaimed, though short-lived, Siegel and Ke- Kelly era, which followed Scott Lobdell's long run. Mm. Launched along with Jason Aaron, the post-Schism Wolverine and X Men, and the X Men. That's one comic. Uh, drew the fear itself tying issues of the Avengers, which not surprisingly were only talking heads. Seriously, it was like twelve. Pa- it was twelve panel grids every page, all well, talking heads. Was that that was a Bendis book or? Uh... Hey, hey, guess what? <laughs> uh, again, with Jason Aaron launched the latest volume, Volume Four of Doctor Strange, which is currently in production right now. Is he still on it? No, I I, that's, so. that's true. You did ask that. Yeah, he. They they've gone through a couple of artists, hmm. but uh, yeah, he was on there for one arc. Ah, and now he's yes, I know he was there for the launch at least. Uh, I try to follow him wherever he goes, but uh... to be honest, he might be on right now. I haven't read it myself mm. in probably a couple of months, so I'm an arc out. He could be on it right now, but he wasn't on two concurrent arcs that happened in gotcha. the fall, so I know that he wasn't okay. there the whole time. Now, as we uh, usually do, we want to tie things up by uh, talking about something else. <laughs> we're going to talk about uh, more, uh, you know, junior teams, the uh, the junior varsity here. Uh, we got a, a list of them here, and we're going to go through a few of them, give a, a bit of the tidbits here. Uh, we'll start with uh, the Newsboy Legion. Uh, they were created by Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. First appearance, Star Spangled Comics number seven, way back in April of 1942. They would uh, this would run for uh, 57 issues. Uh, the team consisted of suicide slum urchins, Tommy Tompkins, he's the leader. We have Big, War- Big Words, who's the team genius. Gabby, an excitable kid who never stopped talking, and Scrapper, who is the uh, you know the the hard nosed tough kid. Uh, policeman Jim Harder, uh, Harper, aka the Guardian. He's sort of there. Guardian. Hey, hey. well named. <laughs> now the team was revised and with with, uh, with Jack Kirby's arrival to DC and Superman's pal Jimmy Olsen number 133 from October 1970. It uh, features the literal next generation of newsboys, which is pretty cool. It's yep. uh, it's, it's all relatives, um, except for the the one that they introduced here. We have uh, they introduced an African American character named uh, Walter, or Flipper Dipper, or Flipper Dipper Johnson yep. Jr. And he was a, uh, you know, surprisingly enough, an old underwater specialist with a name like Flippa Dippa. You got to be an underwater specialist. Yeah, sometimes they call him Flip, but he often walked around with like a snorkel the, on. He's all dressed. Yeah, <laughs> it's like he's ready to the, go anytime. He's got the feet going and everything. Luckily, they did a lot of underwater work. Yes. Um, another team was the Teen Titans, created by Bob Haney and Bruno Premiani. First appearance in the Brave and the Bold, number 54, June, July, 1964, cover date. They ran a, They had a titular series that ran for 43 issues. This was the team of sidekicks. This is the Dick Grayson Robin, Wally West Kid Flash, and Garth Aqualad, poor man with no last name. Uh, because, and uh, they team up because adults are lame. Then they realize adults are keen. And we actually did adults. this. We love them. We love them. Yeah, we, we did this <laughs> issue on a cosmic treadmill that we then actually wrapped up into a big three, like a... 
Teen Titans Fest of a whole Edward bunch of them. So it's it's in there. It's in, it's in the archives on the other feed, and we will update our feed eventually, folks. Don't worry. Yes. Uh, the Brave and the Bold number 60 marked the official debut of the team using the group, group name Teen Titans and included Donna Troy Wonder Girl. Uh, the title was renewed in late 1976, ran for 10 more issues, now included Green Arrow's sidekick Speedy, Roy Harper, Aqua Girl, Bumblebee, the first Hawk and Dove, and three heroes who did not wear costumes, Mal Duncan, Lilith, and Nark. The It'll, cave boy. That's right. Uh, and those, they would show up even later on. Also introduced a Titans West team consisting of a number of other teen heroes, including Batgirl, Betty Kane, which the is... The Golden Age Batgirl. I know, really. I mean, really pulling them, pulling them deep. Uh, and Golden Eagle, and, intro- and they introduced the Joker's daughter at number 48. Uh, mm-hmm. What was her name? Harle- Harlequin, right? The Harlequin, yeah. Yeah. Uh, this, this title was canceled during the DC implosion of 1977. But fret not, because we have the new Teen Titans, uh, created by Marv Wolfman and George Perez. Their first appearance is in the uh, the annoying DC Comics Presents number 26. I can't find it anywhere. This is yeah. <laughs> October 1980. There's a reason uh, for that, probably. <laughs> probably, probably. And I'm, and I'm checking the 25-cent bins for it, which is not a good idea. Uh, they're, they're, t- t- they're self-named series. There you go. Ran for 130 issues over two volumes. Uh, this was uh, Dick Grayson. Donna Troy, Wally West, and sometimes Roy Harper would team up. Uh, they would also have new members, uh, Gar Logan, a.k.a. Beast Boy, a.k.a. Changeling, uh, <laughs> from the defunct Doom Patrol. And uh, they brought in some brand new characters, uh, such as Cyborg, Victor Stone, and uh, Rachel Roth, Raven, and Coriander, Starfire. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, this is, you know, the Teen Titans run for many, including myself. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, even, you know, there's been a lot of iterations through the years. I didn't go through all of them. I felt, no. like, I felt like that would turn it into a Teen Titans episode. But uh, As much as that would tickle me, I don't think I, I think I talk I, about them enough as it is. I think that could be, you know, that such a thing could be in our future, but when people say, you know, <laughs> oh, did you like Teen Titans? They mean this run. This is the one they're talking yeah. about. Uh, I know, it for me too, if I say you gotta Absolutely. check out Teen Titans, which actually is something I said to somebody last week. I meant nice. this. Um, Young Justice, this was created by Todd DeZago and Todd Nauk. Their first appearance was uh, Young Justice, The Secret Number 1, June 1998. Their series ran for 56 issues. This was part of DC's Girl Frenzy fifth week event where Superboy, Robin, and Impulse meet a girl named Secret. Hey. Uh, I heard I heard she was strong enough for a man, right? No, I don't know. But pH balanced for something else. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> uh, this was followed up by a two-part uh, prestige format series, JLA World Without Grown-Ups, where all the adult heroes are sent to another universe. The boys save the day and receive their own ongoing series in September 1998. Wonder Girl and Arrowette join early on. It was sort of DC's turn-of-the-century answer to the Teen Titans. The actual Titan series at the time focused on the grown-up members of the original group, which is sort of what we have now today. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, it's very, very similar. Yeah. Um, Infinity Inc., or Infinity Incorporated, created by Roy Thomas and Jerry Ordway. First appearance, All-Star Squadron number 25, September 1983. Their own title, Infinity Inc., ran 53 issues. So you figure if we have the Teen Titans as sort of a junior Justice League, yeah. Infinity Inc. is kind of the Junior Justice Society. It's a, it's a ripe plum ready for picking, right? <laughs> it's true. Now, many of the members of Infinity Inc. are actually related to the Golden Age heroes, either by blood or are their, you know, godchildren. 
Uh, then we got the New Warriors, created by Tom DeFalco and Ron Friends, first appearing in Thor number 411, December 1989. They are the heroes for the 90s, or at least they were. And we won't go too deep into their origins, as the New Warriors have been requested for a future episode, which will be coming up reasonably soon. Uh, mm. Worth mentioning that the post-House of M Civil War incarnation of the New Warriors, 2007 and 2009, was composed almost entirely by depowered members of Generation X. How about that? So it all, see, it's all very <laughs> simple, everybody. It's not, comics are not complicated. I just no, want to say not that. not at all. <laughs> We have a Power Pack. They were created by Louise Simonson and June Brigman. First appearance, Power Pack number one, cover dated August 1984. Lasted 62 issues. I bought that entire 62 issues for about $5. Really? That's interesting. Yes. Yeah, it was all wrapped up for me for five bucks. All right. You can't go wrong. Uh, uh, I mean, as I remember, I didn't, I didn't like this title because they were like too young. Hmm. But looking back, I, I you know I don't want to read about kids that were my age, basically. Sure. But uh, looking back on it, like it was interesting. They really were young kids, as you they were. You will tell yeah. us right now. <laughs> yes, because we uh, we've got the oldest member, Alex. He's twelve. Yeah. You know, he's not even a teen yet. We got uh, Julie, who's ten. Jack, who's eight. And Katie. They're all their last names are Power, hence Power Pack. Mm. Uh, Katie is five, and they live with their parents in a beachfront house in Virginia. Their father, Dr. James Power, is a brilliant physicist who uh, discovers a process to generate energy from antimatter with the assistance of a converter, like you do. Uh, Now, an an error in Dr. Power's formula was discovered by Elfire? I think that's right. Yeah, that sounds... Elfire. Elfire Whitemane. We'll just call him Whitey, Uh because that's what he wants to be called. And this is a member of a Chimelian race, and they are horrible horse... (laughs) <laughs> yep, they look, they look freaky as, let me yes. tell you. <laughs> now, the, Whitey tries to warn the powers, but is thwarted by his mortal enemy, the uh, Snorks. Oh, those are, the, those are those Smurfs that those had underwater the, yeah, the, the underwater Yeah, I remember those. Yeah. They were great. <laughs> now, the Snorks cap kidnapped Dr. Power and his wife, Margaret, presumably Margaret Power. Uh, Whitey rescues the uh, Power children and, before dying, passes his powers on to them to complete his mission. Thus, they also, yeah. didn't they also have a, uh, a famous uh, Tud, was it like a crossover with Spider-Man or a, or a giveaway issue with Spider-Man? Did they? I, about I, about uh, abuse? Really? I don't know. I don't know anything about that personally. They did I, kind I've of have seen a, ads for it. They did have some kind of a uh, connection. I don't know. I don't really know the full extent of it, but with uh, Franklin Richards. Yeah, he would line. hang out. He would hang out uh, with them. Yeah, it was... Yeah, and when the uh, FF was launched, like the Future Foundation, yeah, uh, the uh, the Power Kids were part of that. So yeah, so that that they were sort of like, I, it's just interesting that there's this like super young part of Marvel of comics, you know. Yep. And I, and I remember even in the art, like you look at them and they all have like cherubic, chubby faces, you know, like they're not trying to look yeah cool, they're not tiny at, adults. At, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> at a time, I mean, like you know, the Teen Titans, like they're teenagers in name only. They really are basically running their own show, but. Uh, <laughs> Anyway, uh, move on to the Young Avengers, created by Alan Heinberg and Jim Chung. First appeared in Young Avengers number one, April 2005. It ran for 28 issues over two volumes. This was a team set up by Vision in case the new Avengers fizzled out, who at the time were new. Uh, Members include Hawkeye, the Kate Bishop one, Hulkling, Iron Lad, Kid Loki, Miss America, Novar, Patriot, Prodigy, Speed, Stature, and Wiccan. 
Uh, just as an aside, Marvel's 1940s forerunner, Timely Comics, had an unrelated character, Young Avenger, who debuted in USA Comics number one, August 1941. And we also have uh, Avengers Academy, which launched out of the heroic age that followed the, the Dark Reign thing that would never end. Uh, and then they would run through the Avengers vs. X-Men uh, crossover. Avengers Academy featured, uh, you know, an academy <laughs> to train potential future Avengers. Well, if we're talking about future Avengers, I guess we could say it's every single person. In the and Marvel nowadays, universe. yeah, who you know, who isn't? If you're not an Avenger, you're not in Marvel comics. Yeah, you're days. you're That's in DC. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now, we have faculty members here. They include seasoned uh, Avengers or superheroes in general. We have Giant Man, you know, Hank Pym. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, are we saying Tigra or Tigra? I forgot how we said it the last time. I think time. it was Tigra because of that rap Tigra. group I like. That's right. We're going to do Tigra. <laughs> we got Quicksilver, Justice, who was a Marvel boy, I believe, at one point. Uh, we also have Speedball, uh, who was Penance, but a different Penance, penance than the one we just met. Whoa. Uh, Jocasta, who was the robot. And uh, Hawkeye. Of note, this series might have been the first to feature Hawkeye in his uh, his movie duds. So he didn't have the little winged uh, helmet anymore. It was, right, uh, right. Just yeah. the, the sunglasses, the cool guy shades. Um, there are a whole bunch of students because everyone's an Avenger. So we will just name a large handful. <laughs> we have, uh, the core class was Finesse, Hazmat, Metal, Reptile, and Striker. We also had uh, Ricochet. He was from the uh, short-lived Slingers series. If you, I don't know if you remember that. Uh, Spider-Man was up on charges for uh, either murder or attempted murder, and so he uh, he took on four separate identities. It was called Identity Crisis, and one of them was Ricochet. And eventually, all four of these personalities that Peter Parker wore for a month had their own series. Of course, we, <laughs> can't let, we can't let those go to waste now. Exactly. Uh, we also have Lightspeed from Power Pack. Uh, Wiz Kid, which was a deep cut from the Exterminators miniseries. Wow. Uh, and yes, Justin Seifert from uh, the Marvel Tsunami Sentinel series. The thing of it was he had a pet sentinel, basically. Uh, Batwing from Batman and Co. Oh, wait. Yeah. That's a different, different Batwing. Different the other Batwing. Batwing, yeah. Yeah, okay. Uh, Thunderstrike from Thunderstrike. And X-23, who is the current all-new Wolverine. Well, uh, and if you didn't have enough of your fill of young X-Folk, we got young X-Men. A <laughs> uh, group of young X-Men assembled by the Hellfire Club member uh, Ronald Pierce, who was posing as Cyclops. A rather, a rather dreadful series that ran 12 issues. Introduced us to new mutant Cypher, who is a totally different character than Cypher. C-Y-P-H-E-R. <laughs> the, one, the new one is C-I-P-H-E-R. One is a lanky, dead white boy. The other is a very much alive black girl. So at least at least we can tell them apart if they're standing next to each yeah. other. Yeah. Uh, we should mention that Cypher with a Y was brought back to life shortly after this, making things totally not confusing at all. And not in the slightest. Yeah. Uh, we also have the Runaways. They were created by Brian K. Vaughan with Adrian Alfona on art. Their first appearance was Runaways number one in July of 2003. And they uh, they had about 66 issues over a number of volumes, about four volumes. Uh, this is where we meet uh, the Runaways. So we have uh, Alex, Chase, Gert, Carolina, Molly, and Nico. They find out their parents are they're occult supervillains. They get together uh, every month or so and... Uh, they caught, they caught them in the middle of a right. Um, so they uh, steal a bunch of items and team up to thwart them. Mm-hmm. They do, and one of them was a traitor. We won't say who, but Alex dies in the process. Well, he's conflicted. Uh, 
You know, it's a traitor is strong, I think, but all right. I'll never forgive him. <laughs> Later on, cyborg Victor Mancha and shape-shifting alien scroll uh, Zaven join the group. Yeah, it's a pretty good... I haven't read the whole thing, you know that, but... Uh, I've, it's been I, a long time. I, I did read, I don't know, probably half of it, in, of the first volume, at least, something like that. Uh, you know, we, we know we could really use some more young X-Men, Chris. So luckily Great. for you, we got uh, new X-Men <laughs> following Graham Morrison's run on new X-Men, the retitled X-Men Volume 2, that is. The mm-hmm. Marvel Universe suddenly saw itself having way too many mutants. During mm. Grant's run, there was a mutant baby boom of sorts, and the school became quite crowded. New X-Men spun out of New Mutants Volume 2 and was originally titled <laughs> New X-Men Academy X, perhaps to avoid confusing it with Morrison's run. I'm already confused, yeah. and, I, and I know all this stuff. <laughs> I know. <laughs> hey, and uh, y- I hear you like uh, young X-Men teams. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay, great. I got I got one for you here. We got a Generation Hope. Now, in the years that, hollow- that followed out House of M, that's where Scarlet Witch said no more mutants, and yep. so no more mutants were around, there were no new mutant births. Until there was. Uh, a girl named Hope was the first new mutant baby. And they named her Hope for, you know, reasons. Right. And so the X-Men decided it would probably be in their best interest if they kept her safe. Uh, keeping her safe included strapping her to cable and sending them both into the far-flung future. That's a, you know, keep, keeping something safe and strapping it to cable, that doesn't <laughs> sound like the, like the right thing to do. Yeah, that, uh, that, that's, uh, that cancels itself out. Yeah, basically. Uh, during this run, Bishop was the main villain. He feared that Hope was not so much a savior to their kind, but a harbinger of something far worse, which tells me that he saw what happened to the X-Men in the years that followed. I think he was right. Hmm. He might have uh he, he might have really been from the future. It's it's all anyway. been part of it's all been part of a well structured plan, Chris. That's what you're <laughs> finding out. <laughs> such a rich and dense uh, <laughs> uh, anyway, after cable ran its course, I think it went about twenty five issues with one of them being a deadpool tie in. Um, Hope came back to the present, fully grown, where she was placed with a few more new mutants. That group that group was collectively known as Generation Hope, and their title did not last very long. Wow. So that is a slew of young teams in comic books, but I bet we have mm-hmm. missed a few. I'm sure we missed a bunch. And I bet our uh, listeners out there could help us out and name a few more young teams. And if they can, they should write to us at weirdcomicshistory uh, at gmail.com. Uh, it is worth saying that Generation X will be getting a second volume this year as part of the X-Men Resurrection Initiative with the first two issues hitting the stands in May. It's one of 10 new number ones Marvel's launching that month. Only 10, huh? So, you know, you got 40 it's a, bucks. It's later. a lean month. Yeah, yeah. really. Sheesh. Uh, anyway, so that that is coming up. <laughs> um, you definitely should uh, subscribe to us and catch us every Sunday on chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at Reggie Reggie. Nominate Comics. And I tell you, every week, and I'm going to tell you now, you should go check out Chris's personal blog, which is now titled, it has dropped a piece of it, it's, it's URL, and this, this is the first time we get to announce it on the podcast, that it yeah. is now, Chris is on infiniteearths.com. Mm-hmm. I wish I wish I had a trumpet to uh, dun, 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 you know what I mean. Very yes. exciting. So now <laughs> it is uh, it has shed its blog spot and it is now uh, whatever that means. It is that. So uh, our, it, our friend Matches Balone said it's officially official. There you go. So and if he said it, believe me, folks, it, it's true. It's fact. It's so uh, 
yeah it's uh you know but the content hasn't changed in fact nothing at all has changed about it except for the url so if you if you're used to it you like it uh it looks the same as it ever did and it's been great i was i was i was uh, even uh kissing chris's ass off the air and, and telling him that i just he's really been going like very casting a wide net as far as thematically like what he's what he's been reviewing in dc he did a a, a jack kirby Jimmy Olsen book recently, mm -hmm. and he did a Jerry Lewis book last week, and it's been a lot of fun. So you really got to go check that out, and like it is updated every day. So yep. make it part of your routine. You got coffee, you got Chris's on InfiniteEarth.com, and you're good to go. Sounds uh, like a good time. And don't forget, if you have any more uh, comic book suggestions, or you just want to reach out to us again, that email is weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com. We will have. Two more Sundays of Marvel books for mm -hmm. Marvel March, uh, but we're not going to reveal what they are yet. Snicked. <laughs> that might be a little hint. We'll see. Uh, but anyway, Chris, I think this is a meaty episode and a very excellent so. episode for him. You have anything else for him this week? Uh, how do you like uh, young X-Men teams? <laughs> you got a couple more for me? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to think about it. There are all those X-Terminators I could oh, dig up. Oh, boy, yeah. I'm sure, I'm sure we could keep peeling them off. And the Fallen Angels. Oh, oh God, they're on more. That's it. This is going to have to be a part two episode. Well, <laughs> until that one, folks, I want everyone to keep it on the treadmill genetically. See you. Well, people try to put us just because we get around Talking about my generation Let me take you a couple Talking about my generation I my die before I get old Talking about my generation My generation Why don't you all just fade away Talking about my generation And don't try to dig what we all Talking about my generation